You're listening to Museum Unlocked, recorded at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History here in Boulder, a place to be curious and be inspired. I'm Pat Kostelik, director of the museum. These podcasts have been created in the time of COVID and are designed to help you gain a behind-the-scenes view into the work and the people of the CU Museum. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Museum Unlocked, where we investigate the careers and journeys of the people behind the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. I'm your host, Rebecca Kuhn, here with my co-host, Mariah Green, and we are interviewing Dr. Jing-Chen Lee today, who's the curator of invertebrates and also assistant professor of ecology and evolutionary biology here at CU Boulder. Welcome, Jing-Chen. Hello. Great to have you with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So you get to play multiple roles here at the University of Colorado. Um, You curate a collection of invertebrates, and then you also teach classes and also do scientific research. Could you tell us briefly what your work looks like in these multiple roles? Yeah, absolutely. So, So like you said, I have different roles, and mainly I'm a researcher, a teacher, and a curator. Right, so as a researcher, I am an evolutionary biologist. I'm also a marine biologist, so I study invertebrates, animals without backbones. Right, so in this role, I, I mostly study processes that generate this great diversity that we see today. And as a teacher, I have many roles. I teach different groups and different ages, but mostly I will teach undergraduate courses. And I also teach courses for our museum and field study program. And I'm also, you know, a mentor for many graduate students, their master's students, PhD students, and sometimes undergraduate assistants. So I work with them to develop thesis projects. And we try to make sure that they reach their career goals and gain the skills they have. And in addition to that, I also participate in outreach activities, so which means I will work with K through 12 students, so high schoolers and sometimes middle school elementary school students. So I'm kind of a mentor in that role as well. And then as a curator, I'm really responsible for the maintenance and the develop of our invertebrate zoology collection. So I supervise a team of several people. So we have collections manager, we have student volunteers, we have graduate student assistants, curatorial assistants, and we work together to maintain the daily activities of the collection. So we process loans, we deposit specimens, we do cataloging, we do digitization. So those are the day-to-day activities we do. And in addition to that, we also write grants to ask money <laughs> to help developing, further developing our collections. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, juggling all of those roles, like, what motivates you the most? Like, why do you do this work? Are you talking about, like, long-term motivation? Like, why do I want to become an evolutionary biologist or a teacher? Or are you talking about day-to-day, like, what gets me up in the morning? It could be all, actually. Day-to-day, long-term, today? Today, well, I work with you today. So, so for the long-term inspiration, let's say that, it's more like... um. My childhood fantasy, I guess, because I grew up in a big city surrounded by all the buildings and cars. And somehow I came upon this book series called The Adventure Series. I don't know if you guys have heard about that. It's written by 
um, Willard Price, I think, is a Canadian-born American writer. And the story is about two brothers, Helen and Roger, that I think they live in New York. It's a long time ago when I read them. And they went around the world to collect animals, to participate in conservation and do all, kind, all kinds of cool ex experiments on animals. And they go to, you know, the Amazon, the North Pole, Asia. They go to all over the world to collect all these animals and have all those really cool encounters. And I read that when I was maybe seven, eight years old. And I just thought, this is so cool. This is something I wanted to do. And so from then on, I just went out collecting all kinds of things I can find. I mean, Beijing is a big city, and there's not a lot of wildlife, but there are a lot of little things that's weird, little bugs and ants. And sometimes we buy lobsters to eat, and I just keep one and tell my parents, can I just keep one as a pet? So my house is always full of weird animals and crabs and stuff. I put in the tank and try to raise them. So those are really kind of the motivations for me to to become a biologist. I wanted to study them. And the real experience that really led me to this position is probably around college, because I really wanted to be a biologist. So of course, I majored in biology when I was a college student. And at that time, I had some opportunities to to intern in, at that time, it's called the it's called Chinese Academy of Science um, Invertebrate Zoology institution. So I had a chance to work there, and my role as the undergrad assistant is to care for, for cave spiders. So every week I go in and open this little fridge, and there's hundreds of tubes of cave spiders. This group of collectors got from southern China from multiple cool places, and I just feed fruit flies to them, thousands of fruit flies to them every week. <laughs> and it started like that, and after that, every time I go back home, my eyes are full of black spots all around. Like they're all flying in front of me all the time. <laughs> so that was my initial experience as a researcher. But because I was dedicated enough to keep doing this every week, the PI finally said, "Okay, I think I think we can move you to a more of a research role." So because of that, I was able to go through their invertebrate zoology collection at that time and study some pretty interesting cave organisms mostly shrimps, and I was able to describe new species as undergraduate students. So that was really exciting, and that opened my eye to see what is possible, and especially these cave animals have really weird adaptations. Some don't have eyes, some lost their pigments. So that all led me to, to think, well, I want to study what, what happened to them, what kind of evolution process they drive their adaptations to weird things, and especially as invertebrate organisms, because that's what I started, spiders and shrimps and snails, that's what I study. And so that really motivated me to apply for graduate school. And that's how I got admitted by the University of Michigan when I moved to the States to start my graduate career. And from then on, it was pretty clear I wanted to do research and stay in academia. So that's a long answer to your question. That's great. Um, Okay, so you, you got this experience as an undergrad, and then you went to grad school at the University of Michigan. Now you're um, in this position here at the University of Colorado. Can you tell us more about your current research? Yeah, of course. So I said I study evolutionary bi biology, right? So I'm interested in all different kinds of factors that drive lineages and species to diversify. And one particular factor I'm really interested in is biological interaction. So, for example, 
competition, predation, parasitism, mutualism. So how organisms interact with each other and how that actually shape their evolutionary trajectory. And I use invertebrate organisms as my study system. And a lot of them are marine organisms. So I get to go to the field and take <laughs> those really cool creatures. And some of my special interests are symbiosis, parasitism, and predation. So if you think about biological diversity, a lot of us are really focusing on, look at how many species we have on Earth and how really interesting look like, and those things are really, you can see them and you focus on them. And this aspect that I study sometimes got neglected in our day-to-day you know, -day conversations and in some research. It's kind of a mysterious part that we don't really see and sometimes we don't really pay attention, but it's actually very important. If you think about it, we're interacting with the ecosystem, with every other species all the time, right? I mean, you eat like a pound of bugs every year. Whether you like it or not, you can't really avoid interactions, right? And and those are really the foundation of our ecosystem, the foundation of a healthy community or unhealthy community for that sake. And we cannot ignore those in our research. So that's the part I really focus on. Could you share one of your key symbiosis interactions that you research? Yeah, of course. So this one I've been really focused on for a few years and it really fascinates me. It's called photosymbiosis. So it involves a, a bigger organism like corals or clams or worms sometimes. It involves a bigger organism and then smaller photosynthetic organisms such as algae or cyanobacteria. So these partners live together and in some cases they live inside a bigger organism. We call them hosts, right? The, the symbionts live inside the host. And what they do is that the photosynthetic smaller organism perform photosynthesis, and then they provide the photosynthetic products like sugar to their bigger host. So as you can imagine, the bigger host doesn't have to really go out there and forage for food or hunting for food or do a lot of activity for, to feed, it, feed themselves. They can just rely on their little photosynthetic symbionts to provide their energy. And then in return, these bigger guys provide a good shelter for the smaller photosynthetic guys. And they also provide some inorganic nutrient, sometimes in the form of their waste, right? The host waste are actually useful for the little algae, the symbionts. So they provide that. And then they also um, evolved interesting mechanisms to help the symbionts to get more sunlight or get sunlight more efficiently. So this mutualistic partnership is really helpful for those groups. And one of the really prominent example is coral. So coral reefs live in this really nutrient-poor marine environment. They don't have a lot of nutrient in the water, but they can form this really magnificent reef structure and support big biodiversity because they have these little algae living inside their cells and they don't need much but sunlight. So they can really thrive and convert solar power, basically, to nutrients to support coral. And then coral will build this massive structure to provide support to other organisms. So this really, really productive and, and diverse ecosystem is really based on this photosymbiosis. So that's what I study. And I'm really interested in not only 
the association itself, but also the genetic or molecular mechanism behind these associations. So what do the hosts do? What are the symbionts? How do they exchange nutrients to each other? How do they recognize each other? How do they control the symbionts grow in the host so they don't explode in the host? And what kind of factors might interrupt these symbioses? So there are a lot of questions behind this fascinating association that we don't know about. And I really want to figure out what happened to them. (laughs) (laughs) And you have multiple species of clams and other invertebrates that exhibit this photosymbiotic behavior that you study, right? That's right. Yeah. So there are some really famous ones, like the giant clam. They can grow really big and they have really colorful um, soft tissues that you can see them in aquariums or in the wild. And then there are other small ones. We call them heart cockles. They're a little small. They're also clam-like. They're bivalves. They bury in the sediments. They have weird shell structures like lenses that can focus lens and direct them down to their tissue so their algae can get light. We also have anemones that grow really fast. And we also have algae in their cells. We also have some jellyfish, the upside-down jellyfish in the tank in the lab. They just sit there and expose their tentacles to the sun and get their algae sunlight. So it's pretty. It's a pretty interesting relationship that has been evolved in many different groups that are not closely related, which means this is a really efficient way <laughs> of getting energy. So, so multiple groups evolved this behavior um, separately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So jellyfish are not really closely related to to clams. Right? Mm-hmm. Clams are not closely related to corals, but they independently evolve this ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cool. And I know that you mentioned that you've done field work. So how essential is like field work for your research, and what has your experiences been overall doing field work? Yeah, so field work is very important to my research. A lot of these organisms that I described to you, I mean, they don't grow well in the lab, so you really have to go to their natural habitat and observe them. And also to do a lot of genetic work, I need to go out there and collect them, preserve them well so they can be bring back to the lab and we can analyze them. And really, you know, biological interactions are are best described in the field. So you can actually see how they are in their natural habitat and the natural environment. And a lot of my field work happening as you can imagine, marine <laughs> environments. And when I talk to people about this, sometimes it feels like, oh, it's so romantic <laughs> going to the tropics and enjoying the, the ocean, the beach. And it's really not like that. <laughs> it's it's pretty dirty and you're tired all the time. You have a lot of stress because you need to accomplish some goals, right? And if something happens, the tide is not right, the weather is not right, and you lose something. And like, oh, I spent so many so much money here. I do. I can't afford to not do this dive. I need to go do it. So it's actually pretty intense, and it's also very organized, right? So my childhood fantasy is this wild expedition into the forest, and then you explore. And it's not like that. We have to really <laughs> organize really well. Day one, we're going to do this. Day two, we're going to do this. Day three, we're going to do this. And these are all the tubes and regions we need to bring. And these are how many samples we need to get. And we need to apply for permit six months beforehand so we can actually get approved when we get there. So it involves a lot of logistics. But then when you actually get into field, it's it's pretty intense, but it's this really immersive, focused time where you just focus on, on nature and your study organism. 
you can't really read emails or <laughs> browse the internet and chat about things. That's all, at least to me, it's out of my head. When I'm there for two weeks, it's entirely two weeks digging the mud or something. So it's a really unique experience. It sounds really incredible, even though it sounds potentially challenging physically and um, logistics-wise. Now, are you responsible for coordinating all of those logistics and writing to get the permits and coordinating a team of people to travel and all of that kind of maybe less glorified work? <laughs> it depends on the projects we're doing. Like sometimes I'm just a participating a product field trip that somebody else leads then that leading organizer is responsible for organizing the people and getting logistics written out. But if it's something that I lead, if it's my own project, my own founding support of this project, I usually need to do the initiative and have all the logistics organized. But also, of course, I have people to help me. Like my collections manager, Dr. Leanne Elder, she's very helpful in navigating through all the permitting. So I'll tell her we're going to go to Alaska Next year, let's figure out what kind of permits we should need. And we work together to get these things done. And of course, the graduate students sometimes can be leaders for their own field trip. Sometimes I'm not even going with them. So at that time, they will be the ones who's making this long list of what I should bring, what is my goal, how do I navigate to the airport, how do I get my specimen on the airplane. And all that stuff is really important for for anyone who wants to lead their own field trip. And I started that as, under, as a graduate student. So at that time, I had to organize some of my small field trips, and I learned some of the things you shouldn't do and the things you need to do. So that's very helpful. I'm curious, um, you, you talk about, like, uh, it's kind of stressful. Um, you got to be, like, doing this <laughs> yeah. day one and stay on track. Is there any specific kind of anecdote that comes to mind when you think of uh, a field adventure of collecting that was like oh my god I don't know if we're gonna make it through our goals and get everything done and kind of paint a picture for us of like oh this is this is really in engaging work but it's not necessarily romantic yeah it's not romantic at all <laughs> and it happens quite a lot especially if I'm searching for a particular species that we know from past records like it's been found there but it hasn't been you know, looked at for the past decade, so I don't know if it's still there. So in these kind of work, it's quite common for, for me to fail to find these organisms, because who knows what this little clam, where it is. It might be in this coordinate, like in this beach, but then I have to go in there and try to dig through the sand. It might not be there. So that's pretty common, even for my graduate students as well. Like I recently, my PhD student, Reiti, he went to Panama. He had this particular species that he wanted to find, this particular species of uh, clam or cockle. We're trying to find, I know from the past record, it's right there in that beach, and it's right there. And I've had undergrad students maybe four years ago. She has been there. She found them there. So I told him, just go there. You get it in the second day. And then he went there, he spent three weeks going in there every day. And he didn't find a single one. Oh, no. Yeah. But then he went to another location, like the last five days, and he found tons of things that he <laughs> did. Yeah, he did all his work in one week, even though I was supposed wow. to do it in like six weeks or something. So that happens a lot. And, and that's not even the most stressful part for me. For me, 
driving is really the part that I fear and I don't like driving it, but, to the locations. Yeah, yeah. So it's really so, rugged or why? I I just don't like driving, but a lot of the field sites require long drives. So when I first started my field work in Australia, I think I just got my driver's license in America because I moved here and I didn't really drive much in China. You don't need to drive in Beijing. You just take buses or bike. So I moved here. All you need a car. Okay. I started, got my driver's license. And then in the next few months, I went to Australia to do this field work by myself and then drive on the left side of the road. <laughs> so I was driving. One day, I think I'm driving from Albany, Western Australia to Perth. It's a four and a half hour drive. So I was just driving early in the morning because you get up really early, you need to catch the tide. And I was on the left side of the road and it was just being crazy intense. And I heard the radio says, oh, this 3 a.m., there's a kangaroo there. Somebody hit the kangaroo and fell in the ditch and couldn't get rescued until later. I'm like, okay, that's going to be me. And I keep driving <laughs> all the way back to Perth and nothing happened. It was successful. I was so happy. And I wrapped my Airbnb. I'm like, I made it. And I went to the garage and I drove the car right to the wall of the garage. <laughs> Destroyed <laughs> the front of the car. So I had to went back to the renting company. Like, oh, look, I did this. Help me. And they got me a new car. Like, luckily, I got insurance. So there's no financial loss. But that's kind of nerve-wracking for me every time. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine just like the, the stresses of travel and I imagine you're also like lugging a lot of expensive equipment around and um, yeah, that's interesting. Mariah, you've, you've done some field work in the past. What was what that like for you? Uh, for me, field work in the past, I can definitely like relate to a lot of things you were saying, like driving like long distances, mm -hmm. um, actually getting to the field, make sure you don't hurt yourself going up formations. For me, the most like recent field work I've done was October of 2019. Um, it was actually like excavating like a turtle from uh, the White River Formation about two to three hours from there and learning how to like plaster and like jacket it. And it was my second time going to the White River Formation. And the second time was much better. The first time was a little bit tough getting used to the terrain, but also just finding the fossils was the toughest. First time, just getting your eyes like used to it. But yeah, um, for me, the second time going and actually excavating the turtle and like plastering jacketing was like really awesome because it was my first time learning how to plastic jacket fossil using newspaper and like this little putty like substance and having guidance from like uh Jacob who's like our lab's collection manager and also having another student with us and had a great time I'm just like so wow I feel like a true paleontologist now. <laughs> yeah you so. are a true paleontologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I definitely understand like with field work there's kind of like you know the anxiety of just like getting to the site and just making sure nothing goes wrong there. Making sure you like achieve your goals or most of your goals. Yeah, that's like the latest in many senses. Jing Chun, you are um you were named as a Packard Fellow in twenty nineteen for science and engineering, which uh, is a prestigious honor to receive the award. But it also comes with an opportunity um, for your research. Could you tell us about the goals and opportunities of your work as a Packard Fellow? Yeah, sure. And it's really a great honor to get that. And I also I got a lot of help from my colleagues and my family to, to get this to get this going. So it's not just my own work. It's really a collaborative effort to get the fellowship. So so it's really the project's inspired by the idea that um we can learn from nature and to better utilize solar energy. 
specifically. And that has something to do with the cuckolds, the symbiosis I was describing to you before, a photosymbiosis. So if you think about it, human agriculture is pretty similar to the coral and algae symbiosis, even though it looks very different. But fundamentally, it's the same idea. We collaborate with plants. We gave them fertilizers, so inorganic nutrients. We gave them land, and we let them grow. And the plants grow. They then provide us basically photosynthetic products, whether it's fruits or leaves, part of their biomass for fuel, etc. Right. So it's really we gave them nutrients. They gave us photosynthetic products. It's not that different from having algae living inside your body. <laughs> you agree? <laughs> I said. But then it's also very different because we're not very efficient in this process. So think about the vast land we have to provide to plants. To do agriculture, and think about the time you have to invest in waiting for for things to grow up, and you can harvest them, right? If you grow corn, I don't know, you plant them in, I don't know, May <laughs> something, and then you wait till fall, and then you harvest them, and then you might have to throw out a lot of biomass that the corn made for themselves to grow, right? And you get this little amount of biomass for your own consumption, so it's not very efficient. We have but, a dragon for the first time, and our water bill is a lot higher as well. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> Especially in Colorado, the water you have to give, give them. Right? So it's not efficient. But if you think about corals, giant clams, and all these animals, they're very efficient. They don't need any extra space at all. They need zero land. They just grow them inside their own body, in their tissues, or in their cells. The symbionts themselves don't devote a lot of energy to their own growth. They're not growing. Roots. They're not growing giant leaves and stems and tree barks. They're not focusing on their own growth. They mostly、mm, export the photosynthetic energy to their host, and their host is really big, so they constantly export this energy to them. And then the relationship is very intimate. The host directly supplies their inorganic nutrients through their cell interactions, right? So it's very efficient. And it's it's very intimate. And my goal is to try to understand the biochemical and genetic mechanisms behind this photosymbiosis. So if we can understand those, hopefully we can use them as maybe a blueprint for a human innovation to figure out how we can better and more efficiently utilize solar energy. So that's kind of the goal for the Pecker Fellowship. That's so neat. So just to clarify, so your Your research, you know, is really exploring this question of、um, really efficient、um, photosynthesis within, you know, the clams that is happening by the algae、um, through this symbiotic relationship. And so, by you getting to really ask these deep scientific questions about how is that happening and how did that evolve, and your hope is that that information can help inform, you know, engineering maybe to leverage that. To create more efficient food systems for humans as well, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So maybe we could culture algae as well. We don't know. Maybe we could, right? And in our bodies, I know. In our bodies, <laughs> maybe not yet. <laughs> When we go to Mars, we can do that. <laughs> But if we get there, my potatoes. Let's just grow algae.、Right. Yeah,、more. exactly. No potatoes, <laughs> <laughs> right? But for example, what if there are some specific chemical signals that the animals are sending the algae? Says, "Now I'm hungry. Give me some sugar or something." 
if we can figure that out, maybe it's a good way for us to use it. We can use the same camera hole signal and tell the algae that we grow. Can you give us some sugar? Maybe that could happen. But that those are some possible innovations we can use. And also, not just food production. We can think about solar panels, etc. Right? We know energy coral, production, and right? Yeah, fuel yeah. production. Yeah, exactly. And, and clams they use their they use their structure to direct lights. We know they're good at making efficient light utilization for their symbionts. We've we've we figured out their optical structure. Maybe we could use it for our solar panels or our solar batteries and our solar cars. I mean that would be very nice. <laughs> That's so neat. So so the the long term is that there would be a nice exchange between kind of innovators of maybe energy production by utilizing your findings? Yeah, that would be long-term goal. Right? Yeah. And not an expert in that field. We really need a lot of engineers and, and entrepreneurs to, to think about this idea. But yeah, I mean, Piker Fellowship is about thinking big. Yeah, think that's wild. So yeah. that's an exciting uh, future collaboration of, you know, utilizing your biological research. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a few. Hi, my name's Jim Hockle. I'm the Senior Educator at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. The CU Museum creates exhibits and educational programs to foster curiosity and appreciation of the natural world and of human cultures. If we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, we would invite you to come visit our free museum on Boulder Campus, which features five exhibit halls, including paleontology, anthropology, and the Bio Lounge, a place designed especially for students. In non-pandemic times, we host lectures and programs, provide guided tours and workshops for groups of all ages, distribute hands-on educational materials to classrooms across Colorado, and offer hands-on programs for families and children, like family days and mornings at the museum. Until we can serve you in person, you can explore online exhibits, downloadable nature guides, family activities, at-home teaching resources, and even Zoom backgrounds on our Museum from Home section of our website. Explore with us at www.colorado.edu forward slash CU Museum. The University of Colorado Museum of Natural History houses the largest collections of natural history objects in the Rocky Mountain region. Currently, more than 5 million objects are here in our collections across a, a wide array of disciplines, including anthropology, botany, entomology, paleontology, and zoology. The collections include the world's oldest documented Navajo textile, the best collections in the world of lichens from the Galapagos Islands, and Colorado's largest collection of bees. Our 11 curators also conduct research and are active faculty members in the departments of ecology and evolutionary biology, anthropology, and geology here at the University of Colorado Boulder. Hello, my name is Ashley Mugley, a recent museum and field studies graduate from CU Boulder, where I focused on anthropology collections management. For my final project, I focused on identifying unassociated funerary objects in collections and assisting our new curator, Dr. Sam Plaid, in preparing collections for consultations. I chose CU to continue my education due to its reputation, access to a wide network of museum professionals, and the importance of community collaboration while caring for cultural materials. The University of Colorado Museum of Natural History is home to a two-year master's degree in museum and field studies 
as well as a professional certificate program. Learn more at colorado.edu slash cumuseum slash MFS. Welcome back to Museum Unlocked. We are here with our guest, Dr. Jing Chen Lee, curator of invertebrates and assistant professor of ecology and evolutionary biology here at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. So you've talked about your role as a researcher here. Um, tell us a little bit more about your roles as a curator and as an assistant professor and mentor of students. Yeah, so actually, I think those roles are pretty intertwined together. And especially as the evolutionary biologist, Natural History Museum is really essential for many uh, ecology and evolutionary research because we preserve specimens, but we also um, provide materials for innovative research, right? You can utilize museum collections to study the past. And my goal as a curator is really to set a vision for our collection as well as um, expanding it and provide new research directions and to collaborate with the general public and other institutions to make sure they have opportunities to use our collections. So for example, as a mentor, I have graduate students who work on museum collections. Right? One of my PhD students, Bridget Chalifor, she works on our snail collections, mountain snail collections in the museum. And of course, we study biological interactions, right? So, so, so she studied the, the microbial communities in those snails and figuring out what kind of roles they're playing in their snail host and looking at variations of their bacteria community compositions through time. So because we have this collection, because we have this very well-curated mountain snail specimens, she can actually um, dig in to specimens that are 100 years old and sequence their gut tissue and look at what kind of microbial communities are in there. And she Hold can... on. We have <laughs> snails in our museum collections that are 100 years old that still have genetic tissue that is now being analyzed and compared to current ones. Somehow they work. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. I knew, so I knew that we had some older you know, grasshopper collections and stuff, but um, that's amazing. Yeah, so yeah, we so we have if you preserve things in ethanol, depending on the conditions of the organisms and the, the conditions of the time of preservation, sometimes they really stick there, the microbial communities, you can still sequence them after a hundred years, ninety years, etc. And you can compare them with current snails. We can collect them today and then sequence their gut and then see what's the difference. That's so, amazing. So, so really studying the evolution of the interactions between the microbial communities and the snails themselves. Yeah, exactly. And because we have really good records of these snails, we know exactly where they were collected, say, 50 years ago. And then we could go back to the exact same location and collect fresh ones. And then we can have a look at their guts, microbial communities, and see what's happening. So the museum collections are really informative um, for guiding research questions and um, having that actual physical data to um, analyze. And, and you, you never know what kinds of new questions might emerge. Yeah. Um, so, if, for example, there was an article some time ago about um, birds in, I forget which museum's collection, but um, studying the soot on them was helping understand pollu how pollution changed over time. And so... Yeah. Part of the, the value of our museum collections is that by collecting over time, we're able to answer future questions that we can't even imagine right now. 
Yeah, exactly. It's a time capsule you're, you're capturing. Mm-hmm. You never know what's going on in the future, right? But then you have this document of present, and it became the past <laughs> later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some studies looking at viral um, compositions in using specimens, right? Because in recent years, we've seen viral outbreaks in marine organisms and if different communities, and sometimes we don't know what those viruses are. And I'm like, oh, are those new viruses? Speaking of pandemics, <laughs> but not, not about humans, but other organisms. And are they new vi- viruses that just came out and, or what is happening? And people go back and look at the museum collection. Sometimes you'll find all these old specimens actually have association with similar viruses. So you may say, okay, these things existed for decades. And hmm. somehow this year, I don't know what happened, it caused an outbreak. Or you can say, okay, we've never seen this strain before. So maybe this is a newly evolved virus. Hmm. So those are very important questions to ask. So for your role as a researcher, how much would you say that your research is relevant to um, any insights for today? Yeah, well, there are different aspects, I think. So the fundamental aspect of my research on symbiosis is really to understand really how organisms interact and how that impacts our ecosystem function, right? So in a larger picture, humans is as a species in our ecosystem and we interact. So anything we learn will help understand our surroundings. Is that the bigger picture? And then of course some of my projects are focused on conservation issues. For example, I study parasites, invasive parasites, and how that disrupt our local community and ecosystem. And those are more pressing issues. Like this species is being impacted. It's gonna go extinct in the next decade. How do we prevent that from happening? And all of those will require us to understand the invasive parasites and how that impact the host and how they spread, how fast they spread, are the host genetically different or the same? All these questions are related to our present issues. And then, of course, I think there's the philosophical um, aspect of my research because I study symbiosis and mutualism and how organisms collaborate and help each other. And I think that has some fundamental implications of, of human society and we as a species i think it's really um, built on mutualism and collaboration and cooperation and that's a really important factor in society and how we function i think from learning from these animals and other organisms it always reminds me inspire me how i should behave day to day in my life and how i should think if I want to do something, I like to think about, okay, how I could help others by doing this. And then I ask for help. How can others help me ask for help a lot? Right? So these research questions really inspire my day-to-day life and how I interact with my kids and my students and my colleagues in the society building. I love that. Um, I also feel like right now is such a challenging time to have faith in the existence of symbiosis in our human societies. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it is July of 2020 for anybody who's wondering, <laughs> when are we talking about? And um, American society is you know, particularly divided right now, and we have so many um, conflicts at a global level. Um, what signs of hope do you see in in your daily interactions with the world where you see you see mutualism playing out in human interactions? Actually, yeah. I think our, you know, our media and social media 
tend to focus on the conflicts and disagreements and struggle, and sometimes rightfully so. But I think we do have this other half of interactions that we sometimes tend to not focus on, but they're there. It's not because they're gone; they're there. We sometimes maybe lost track of them, and so I do see that in our society all the time. I think if you actually look, like when the pandemic started, you know, my neighbor she's making a hundred masks every day to send to the hospital for free, and then my uh, blog there's. The house I see, they put out a desk there, and they put out food and stuff there. Say just free to take and masks there. So I think in our day-to-day daily activities, everybody is still thinking about others, even though sometimes we might be more, I don't know, caught up in the conflicts we see and what we read. But I think the other half is not gone. It's still fundamental to our society, and it's there, and we should. Focus some of effort on that as well, and for our audience out there, think about there's hope there and how we can all change our behaviors and focus on the positive and mutualistic side of our interactions, despite our differences and disagreements. I hope I hope that we keep moving in that direction. <laughs> yeah, we can't we can't survive without it. I think. <laughs> The fact that we're still surviving, it must mean that there's a lot of collaboration and <laughs> mutualism going on. Um, so, thinking of a specific kind of mutual human mutualism, um, really teaching comes to mind for me. So, um, in your role as an assistant professor, you're you're really trying to impart things to students, but I'm sure you're also um, benefiting as well. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you view yourself as a teacher. I really what that role looks like for you and the goals of it for you. Yeah. So for me, let's talk about undergraduate students teaching because that's most of my official teaching activity happens, right? For me, I really see myself as a facilitator. And my goal is really to help my students to develop independent and critical thinking through um, STEM learning. Because I teach, the the main course I teach is invertebrate zoology or animal diversity invertebrates. So it's really expanding students' knowledge on the diversity of animals, right? So I'm not just, I don't want to just push knowledge into their head. (laughs) I'll try to facilitate facilitate them to maybe figure out things themselves and develop this skill of independent thinking and critical thinking and asking questions and, and debate and be disagree with me, that's fine, right? So I want that to happen. That's one major goal for my teaching. And then the other major goal for me is to really provide a different worldview to students by exposing them to the diversity in nature and animals, right? Because every time I teach the class, I ask them, do you know how much percentage of animals are invertebrates and they guess 50 percent 60 percent and then it's like more than 97 percent let's say more than 97 percent yeah more than 97 percent animals are invertebrates um, but we don't really <laughs> pay much attention to them in our day-to-day life because what you see wow. is things that look like you so mammals and vertebrates and birds and, and the things that we tend to pay more attention to <laughs> yeah exactly but there are you know two percent three percent of the diversity there and 97% or something else. So but I thought to... humans were like such a major part of <laughs> Yes, we are. Ecosystem. Aren't we the focus of everything? 
well, we are a major part, but I don't think we're <laughs> the focus of everything. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. So by exposing them to this other side of diversity, we realize our role in nature. And the earth would probably be fine without us, but we like to be here because it's a nice place. So <laughs> the different things we should be doing. <laughs> Well, I actually reached out to a couple of students that are part of your lab, and I asked them, what's the most valuable thing that you've gained in your experiences working with Dr. Jimmy Chun? And I got a couple of them to respond. And <laughs> did this behind my bed? <laughs> I did. I was very sneaky, and they reciprocated the sneakiness. <laughs> um, so um, I have four quotes from them. So one of them said, um, curiosity towards nature and using science as a tool to broaden my knowledge of nature. Wow, that's very deep. <laughs> yeah. Another said, there is no boundary to understanding the world around us, and there is always an opportunity to learn and discover new things. So you're, they're, you're they're in, so creative. <laughs> well, you're inspiring them um, to, to think this way as well. Another said that um, working with Dr. Lee has really opened up my eyes to how science works in the real world. No guided labs or predetermined results, just covering completely new ground and overcoming obstacles as they come. Not only that, but everyone in the lab is very supportive and kind. Definitely not the cold, unfeeling stereotype that science labs seem to get. <laughs> I'm glad. you. <laughs> Yeah, I it would be hard to describe you as cold. <laughs> um, and then the last one um, said, the most valuable thing I've gained from my experiences working with Jing Chen is being true to my strengths and to use every weakness as a learning opportunity. This also means that we should never stop being curious and every question can open new paths. Wow, I'm very proud of them. <laughs> I'm really no. glad that's how, how they think. I'm glad yeah. I can provide that. Yeah. And I hope you're a little proud of yourself, too. A little bit. <laughs> Good. Um, it's a mutualism, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, well, I want to shift a little bit to thinking about um, how did you get to where you are in your career? Mm -hmm. um, so I'll focus on kind of you as a whole person, and then we can kind of um, go in some different directions. But um I know that you are a mother of two young children, mm -hmm. and ages two and four, is that right? Yeah, four and a half. And okay. She, yeah, she just turned two June 30th. So. Nice. Yeah. Um, we got to get that half in there for the four-year-old, four-and-a-half-year-old. But um, <laughs> what's it? So I'm currently pregnant, and um, I'm going to become a mom in October. Congratulations. Thank <laughs> you. Um, What's it been like for you to navigate the roles of, of being a mother, um, particularly of young children, while also being um, in academia as a curator and scientist and professor? So it really involves a lot of ranking priorities <laughs> when you have young kids. And for me, really, it's really, you, you just don't have time. Right, definitely lacking of time is a big factor involved in balancing all of that. I just simply don't have evenings and weekends to focus on my research at all. The two needy, <laughs> demanding kids will come to me <laughs> and grab me to be with them, and I'm happy to do that. But that means I don't have weekends and evenings to do anything related to work. So because of that, I really have to have a ranking list of things that what I focus on. 
And as a researcher, I really want to focus on advancing my research. And as a curator and teacher, I want to really do a good job on those responsibilities. So that means really crossing some things out of my list, right? So as a community member, I think I would like to do more service than I'm currently doing, right? I don't serve a lot of roles in my professional societies, even though I want to help and advance them. And sometimes I will say no to committees. Like I really want to join our diversity committee, for example, and I simply have to say, you know, think about the time you have. Maybe I don't have time to do this other committee. So that's one side of work. And the other side is really, you know, for family life, we, we need to cross something out of our list. I think I'm a good mom. I'm not a perfect mom. Like I gave them, you know, Costco frozen food all the time. We don't really cook a healthy meal every three days, three times a day. I can't do that. <laughs> I let them watch TV. <laughs> no, I'm not supposed to. I go watch TV. I need some time. I need to just lay in my bed. <laughs> so I do those things. And <laughs> that's just life. You deal with that. And it's okay. I used to feel a little anxious about it. And, now I feel less anxious about it, just seeing my kids growing, like, yeah, they're not going to be ruined if I let them watch TV half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you have to find that balance. Yeah, exactly. But on the other side, it's really fun to be with them. They really teach me how to be a good mentor, I think, because interacting with toddlers is so much harder than talking to undergraduate and graduate students, right? Every week I come to work, I appreciate my students so much more <laughs> after the weekends. Like, you guys are so good. <laughs> you're not tugging on my shirt. You know. <laughs> yeah, not saying no to me every sentence I say. <laughs> you're so good. <laughs> it really helps. <laughs> Do you see your role um, as a mom and your role as a, a teacher um, kind of benefiting each other in, in any way or um, like that blending between how you show up to your your career and your job and how you show up to your children yeah definitely I think the teaching aspect is uh, my kids really help me because they have this curiosity that's really spontaneous and interesting the things they focus on and how they want to handle things I think they really kids really do have this scientific instinct that sometimes we just lose as we grow. Like they really have some sort of scientific, systematic way of figuring things out. And it's really interesting to watch them. If they see a strange berry, you know, in, in the wild, they will try to touch it. They will tell you, berry, I see a berry. And then they'll go there and they'll try to smell it and touch it. And they'll look at the leaves around it and they pick it and they try to eat it. And they do all kinds of investigations on this little berry that I never focused on. So that's really interesting eye-opening. <laughs> if I observe something weird in my research, how should I approach it? Right? Maybe mm. not eating it, but they're like all different angles you can, you can do to approach scientific questions <laughs> that way. That's great. How would your four-year-old describe what you do? <laughs> he probably will say, you know, mommy studies animals and dig shrimps in the mud or something like that. <laughs> That's pretty accurate. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. I try to tell him what I do. If I go out in the field, I'll tell him I won't be here the next two weeks. This is what I'm going to do. And then he'll ask all kinds of questions and stuff like that. Can we have them as pets? No. <laughs> Can I go see your class? Do you have pets at home? 
We don't. <laughs> I don't think I could add more to to my cleaning <laughs> routine. <laughs> I was picturing picturing pets like you had of, oh, we're gonna have this lobster for dinner, and actually <laughs> Jing Chen's gonna have this lobster for a pet for a little while. <laughs> oh, in that sense, we do. We have spiders, we have beetles,、okay. we have all kinds of weird things. All earthworms and really polis. They bring in all those things all the time. Do、But、they bring them into little habitats, like little enclosures inside? Yeah, we have jars, and we try to feed them in lattice, egg, and <laughs> watermelon. See what they eat. There's spiders in the house. We just let them be because I feel like they're good. They're catching the pests, so we don't get them out. So in that sense, we do have animals living with us. That sounds like a fun continual science observation project at home. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about how barriers and privileges have influenced、um, where you have gotten in your career? Yeah, sure. So one privilege I definitely have is a very supportive family. Like my parents never restrict me; they really allow me to freely explore. Even when I grow up, you know, I will have relatives telling me. You know, you're a girl. You're not supposed to study STEM, major in STEM. You should, you know, be learn learn history and humanities. That you're not really supposed to do that. But my parents never do that to me. If I like biology, I mean, they, I'm sure they coped with all my weird pets and dirty things in the house all the time. I used to have chickens in the little tiny apartment because I just want to play with animals, and they have to clean up all the poop, <laughs> feed them. They just let me do it.、Right? <laughs> and I want to study biology. They're really supportive. And if I'm, I want to go abroad and do graduate school in America, I'm the only child, and they, you know, I'm sure they really miss me and they want me to go, but they allow me to go. So they're really supportive. I'm free to explore, and all outside voices that I hear that might impact me, they just they don't care. They're like, ah,、oh, don't hear that. That's don't don't worry about it. <laughs> so that's definitely an important privilege I, I have. And for obstacles, I think there are probably two directions. One is、um, being an immigrant; there are obstacles on that aspect, and the other is probably more on the woman in science, as a, as a woman and mom in science. So for <laughs> immigrants, it's there's a lot of cultural barriers. I don't know if they're obstacles. I think they're more like cultural shock and differences that I need to adapt to. Like when I first moved to this country, went to grad school and. Setting classes, and all the other American students are are discussing things. <laughs> Growing up in China in class, you're never supposed to talk. You're never supposed to, especially talk to the teachers. That's not possible. You're supposed to sit there and listen the whole time and absorb everything in. Right? That's what I'm used to. When when I first came here and have classes, I was like, "What are they talking about? Why are they talking?" I don't know what to say. <laughs> didn't speak. I didn't say anything probably for the first entire first year during class. I just didn't know what to say, and I feel really bad about myself, like I'm dumb or something. I don't have anything to say. But slowly I adapt to it. And others are more like day to day life. I feel a little isolated because I don't understand the cultural background of a lot of discussions. Like we used to have coffee hour where the museum sits together and and chat, and then people will tell jokes and. About what's going on and their cultural backgrounds and their 
talking about cartoons they watch when they're younger. I have no idea what they are. I never laughed at any of the jokes because I just didn't understand at all. So for an entire year, I just sit through the coffee hour trying to absorb all the jokes. And maybe like a year later, I figure out why they're laughing. <laughs> so yeah, so these things, I mean, they definitely affect I think international students, maybe not just me when you first started. It's like, yeah, yeah a little isolated. I don't know what's going on. Later, I realized I don't think I was being isolated on purpose. It's just a natural process when you go into a culture that you don't, you're not familiar with. And so it helped me to go out and ask people to, to include me in things. You just ask, can I go to this trip with you? And eventually, I think that obstacle is past for me mm-hmm. and then as a woman in, in science obstacles came i think more from colleagues more than students and other people i interact not colleagues here i think colleagues here in CU boulder they're really really supportive and they understand what we came from and they support my work and they're really good but in my past as a graduate student and meetings and conferences I will face obstacles mostly because people don't tend to take me as serious as others. So usually our interaction will be me sitting there and listen to a lecture of someone telling me things. And that's a little frustrating, right? I don't want it to interact. I don't want to just be sit there and told things. But that And you think that's mostly a result of being a woman in science? I think so. I could be wrong. But I feel like if I were a man or maybe if I were American. I don't know. But I just feel like they kind of talk over me more. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just my personal feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just to um, inquire, did you grow up speaking English? No. No. When did I, you learn English? Officially middle school. I think. Okay. Yeah. I imagine that that would impact um, your experiences as well of coming to America to be a scientist. But it sounds like the cultural aspect is maybe more impactful. Yeah, I think the cultural aspect is more impactful. When I, when I came here, I don't think I have a problem communicating, but it's the references to all kinds of things that I didn't know. That's the hard part. And feeling like you don't, you can't fit in because you don't know all of these references that people are joking about. Yeah, references yeah. and practices. Yeah. Like discussion in class yeah. or party and happy hours i didn't know what they are i don't know i don't know all the names of beers i don't know all the names of cheese <laughs> i think food is still my biggest i don't know obstacles in life like i order things in the restaurant but i don't know what they are there's so many type of cheeses names that i don't know there's so many beers in colorado <laughs> yeah not exactly <laughs> vocabulary on that side is still pretty <laughs> poor <laughs> So what do you feel society can do to get more girls into the sciences? I think we really have to start early. That's why we have the games program, the museum, right? Which stands for Girls at the Museum Exploring Science. Yeah, exactly. So we bring elementary school girls to the museum and let them interact directly with with people, with scientists, with museum staff, to see what's the possibility there. And I think it's really important to have girls, young people know their potentials and what's out there for for them. We don't want them to grow up already having a stereotyping idea of what they can't do, what they're not allowed to do. So I think that would be a good first step. 
And what about for college students that, you know, they might just not know all of the different pathways that they could be pursuing. And they're at this kind of critical time where there are legitimate reasons of like why they kind of need to identify a pathway, not that they can't change their pathway in the future, but um, what kind of perspective might you share with, with a college student who's looking to have a fulfilling career pathway um, particularly in a museum setting or in a science um, field? So I think the first thing is don't be afraid to ask. I think a lot of professors and colleagues in CU are very open to having undergraduate students to do internship or help out in their lab, and we always need help. I mean, especially in college evolution, we have a lot of processing, a lot of interesting work to do, and we're always in need of help. So even if you don't have prior experience, or you don't know what it's like, just don't be afraid to ask. Shoot an email, it doesn't hurt. And you might get into a lab that opens your eyes and you can try it. If you don't like it, there's, you're building up your resume and you can ask for the next place you want to go and try things. I really think the best way to learn is to actually do it, right? So that's very important to ask for, for help. And then I think the second thing is don't, just don't be afraid of, of failing. That's just a common um, procedure in life. I don't know. I fail all the time. Have you have you failed? I mean, nowadays it's more like your grant is rejected, your <laughs> paper is rejected. They don't like your manuscript. It happens all the time. I mean, I really have something that I send it in, and they're like, "We like it. <laughs> we accept it." That it seems like that never happens to me. <laughs> so your failure is like all the time. Don't don't be get comfortable failure. with failure. I, I think I am getting comfortable with it. Like, is that kind of the takeaway? Like, Yeah, 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 exactly. A lot of successful people failed so many times, and it doesn't define who you are. It doesn't even define the quality of your work just because somebody else says, I don't like it or it's not good. It really doesn't mean it's not good. So, and it's, you know, a learning opportunity. You, you don't be personal about it and then stay away from personal conflicts and just think, well, maybe this person has a point. Like it happened to me all the time. Like when I was a grad student, when I was submitting one of my first papers and the person will say, this is rubbish. <laughs> and of course, I, I got offended and all annoyed. And then my advisor, he got annoyed too. <laughs> He's a very experienced advisor. And he's like, yeah, this is so bad. And after that, we just sit together like, okay, how do we address this and process this? So that, that really helps me to learn. And then also my postdoc advisor, she's a really famous Harvard professor. And then in her office, there's this whole wall of rejection letters of all her students and herself, Mm -hmm. like paper rejections, job rejections, (laughs) grants rejections. She just have a whole wall of them. (laughs) That's an interesting tactic. (laughs) Yeah. So seeing that, I'm like, oh, all her accomplished students who applied these many jobs and got rejected, but now they're really successful. So that's great. Yeah, it doesn't mean they can't do it. Persevere. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jing Chen, for being here with us today and sharing about your career and your life and your research. Uh, It's been lovely to hear more about what you do and how you got to where you are. Yeah, you're welcome. It's really fun to talk to you guys. Yeah. And thanks, Mariah, for co-hosting with me today yeah yeah no thank you for telling us your paleontology stories yeah <laughs> it was a joy to talk about <laughs>
And for anybody who's curious, Mariah is a student in the Museum and Field Studies Master's Program, which is housed within the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History here in Boulder. And I am also a graduate of that program as well. Thank you. All right. We'll tune back in to our next episode of Museum Unlocked. I'm Samantha Eads, Visitor Services Coordinator at the CU Museum. Thanks for listening to the Museum Unlocked podcast. You can follow the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History on Facebook at at CUMNH and Instagram at at CU Museum. You can also email us questions, comments, and support at cumuseum at colorado.edu. Learn more about our organization at colorado.edu slash cumuseum. And please explore our online resources for teachers and families, updated weekly on our Museum from Home page.